I thank God for all who have led us in worship today, for our musicians, for those who have offered readings and prayers. And We're in a sermon series right now that is called the New Testament Challenge. The series is paired with our congregational endeavor to read the entire New Testament in the year 2022. We have about 350 people that have signed up to read the entire New Testament this year, and so this series is intended to help all of us understand Scripture on its own terms, or put another way, to allow Scripture to help us understand Scripture. Today I want to draw your attention to Romans 15, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of my sermon is, Three Modern Methods of Biblical Interpretation. Paul writes, We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In seminaries, divinity schools, and university religion departments across the country, students are exposed to various methods of biblical interpretation. These modern methods of interpreting the Bible can be broken down into three broad categories. Historical critical methods, literary methods, and reader response methods. In this sermon, I will briefly explain these three methods and show how they can help everyday Christians discern the meaning of Scripture for our lives today. First, let's discuss historical critical methods. Friedrich Schleiermacher was a 19th century German theologian who argued that understanding a text requires understanding the author's intent. This is the heart of historical critical methods of interpretation. They seek to determine the author's intent and what the text meant in its original historical setting. Theological basis for this approach is found in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21, which says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This passage conveys that God inspired the authors of Holy Scripture. 
Therefore, recovering the author's intent is a key way to access divine inspiration through Scripture. As an example of how historical critical methods work, consider 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. In terms of the original historical setting, it's important to know that Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. The Apostle Paul originally addressed these words to Christians located in a prominent city of the Roman government. Moreover, the phrase peace and security was a well-known government slogan of the time. Indeed, the famous Pax Romana, or Peace of Rome, was touted throughout the empire. In light of this historical background, Paul is not only teaching that Christ will return suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night, he is also subverting Rome by declaring that those who say a peace and security will be upended when Christ returns. In its original historical context, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3 was a direct subversion of the Roman government. It suggests that Christ rules over Caesar and will one day overpower the empire. And thus, Rome is not the true source of peace and security. Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The point is that ultimate peace is found not in the Pax Romana, but in the God of peace. The first century Christians in Thessalonica likely would have understood Paul to be saying that they should put their confidence in Christ instead of Caesar, and that their primary commitment should be to the church of God rather than the empire of Rome. Let us now turn our attention to literary methods of biblical interpretation. Literary methods of interpretation locate meaning within the text itself, in the very rhetoric of its language. Literary critic Robert Scholes explains, Texts have a certain reality. A change in a letter or a mark of punctuation can force us to perceive them differently, read them differently, and interpret them differently. In other words, the text indicates how it is to be understood. In this approach, the goal is not to get behind the text to the original historical situation, but rather to pay attention to the text itself. Literary methods seek to determine the meaning of a text's language and rhetoric in light of its larger literary context within a book regarded as a rhetorical and literary whole. Theological basis for literary methods of interpretation is found in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God. While 2 Peter 1 indicates that God inspired the authors of scripture, 
2 Timothy 3 indicates that God inspired the scripture itself. Since God has inspired the text of scripture, studying the text in its larger literary context is a key way to access divine inspiration. As an example of how literary methods of interpretation work, consider Matthew 8 verse 4. Jesus has just healed a man from leprosy and he says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Some church members who read this passage last week for the New Testament challenge posed this question. Why did Jesus tell the leper not to tell anyone of his healing? It's a great question. This verse is part of a larger theme in Matthew called the Messianic secret because Jesus appears secretive at certain junctures. In Matthew 9, for example, he heals two blind men and says to them, see that no one knows of this. In Matthew 16, he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. Why would Jesus want his identity as Messiah to be kept a secret? I think we learn the answer in Matthew chapter 17 as we follow the book as a rhetorical and literary whole. After Jesus is transfigured on a mountaintop in front of Peter, James, and John and his face glows like the sun and his clothes turn dazzling white, he says to them on the way down the mountain in Matthew 17, 9, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus didn't want his identity kept secret forever, only until after he had died on the cross and risen from the grave. The reason, it seems, is that he didn't want people to get the wrong idea about him. He didn't want them to hear that he was the Messiah and expect him to defeat Caesar with the sword. He didn't want people to expect political prominence or military might from him because Jesus was the type of Messiah who demonstrates power in love. He was a king who wore a crown made of thorns. He was the savior of the cross. He wanted to redefine the role of savior before he was publicly touted as Savior, so that people would truly understand him and understand the salvation that he brings through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Let us now consider a third category of biblical interpretation called reader response methods. In the late 19th century, German philosopher Wilhelm Dilte argued that our life experiences influence our interpretations of texts and therefore a pure objective interpretation is impossible. Later in 1960 continental philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer claimed that the meaning of a text is found in a fusing of horizons. The text in its original historical context meets the reader in the modern-day context, and interpretation 
happens. Gadamer argued that meaning is not located behind the text or within the text, but in front of the text, somewhere between the reader and the page. In reader response methods, therefore, meaning is associated with readers who bring their life experience to the interpretative task. This does not mean that Scripture means whatever we want it to mean. It means that Scripture has particular meaning for our lives. Reader response methods seek to determine the meaning of the text in light of the reader's life experience. Theological basis for reader response interpretations is found in Romans 15 verses 1 through 4. In this passage, Paul's dealing with some tension, a conflict within the church at Rome. And he urges the Roman Christians to please their neighbors instead of themselves. He says, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul is quoting Psalm 69.9 to get Christians to see that Christ pleased others rather than himself and that Christians should therefore build up their neighbors rather than being self-centered. He's applying Psalm 69.9 in a whole new way to a whole new situation hundreds of years after the text was originally penned. Why? He declares in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. The implication is that God speaks to us in the modern day context through ancient scripture. It's not just written for the original historical setting or as part of a larger rhetorical and literary whole, but also carries real meaning in the here. And now, the Apostle Paul was not bound to historical critical methods or literary methods, but rather set forth new interpretations of the Old Testament in accordance with the Holy Spirit's guidance. If whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, then discerning how Scripture speaks to us, negotiating that space between The page and the reader is a key way to access divine inspiration. The key question for reader response methods is really the key question for all Bible reading. Namely, how does this scripture instruct us today? Let me be clear that we need not choose only one of these three methods It's better to choose all of the above. In fact, Bible scholar Sandra Schneiders proposes an integrative approach that incorporates historical and literary methods, yet culminates in a prayerful type of reader response interpretation in which the meaning is negotiated between the reader and the text with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We can read Bible commentaries and other resources to learn historical and literary meanings of a given scripture. Yet in the end, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means for us today. Scripture is not stuck in the past. 
Scripture is not stuck on the page. Scripture leaps into our lives, making claims, teaching us, correcting us, training us in righteousness, conveying the Word of God for the people of God here and now. No matter how learned, all other methods of interpretation fall short if Scripture does not make its way into our lives today. Bible scholars, church leaders, indeed all Christians would do well to heed the warning of the 19th century Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard who wrote this, Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without letting the Bible come too close. If we study Scripture from historical and literary perspectives and pray for the Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means for us today, the Bible will draw close, so close that it shapes our consciousness, seeps into our hearts, directs our minds, infiltrates our actions, and transforms our lives. As an example of how spirit-guided, integrative, reader-response methods work, let me share with you briefly from my own experience. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to serve as a young life leader. Young Life is a wonderful ministry to high school students. But at the time I had this opportunity, I was busy with many other things and not sure if I should make the year-long commitment that was required to be a Young Life leader. During the time when I was prayerfully considering my decision about this, I was reading Proverbs 3 one day and I came across Proverbs 3 verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. The scripture leaped off the page into my mind, into my heart, into my life, and I knew God was calling me to be a young life leader. And so I became one for the next two years. Years later, when I was pastoring a church in another state, a family of members in our church was doing an at-home family devotional time on Matthew 22:39, where Jesus teaches us, love your neighbor as yourself. They read the text as a family. They talked about it for a minute. Then they decided they would pray silently, all four of them in the same room, and ask God to show them, to direct them, to reveal to them a specific neighbor that they could love. Even though they were praying silently, all four of them thought of the same person, a senior adult who lived a few houses down. When they reached out to her, they learned that she was struggling. Her home was in disrepair, and her own condition was such that she was having trouble getting groceries and taking care of basic everyday household tasks. So the family in our church took this woman under their wing, and they began helping her with her home to try to get it in better shape, they began helping her get groceries and the medicines that she needed, helping her with everyday household tasks that she couldn't take care of herself. And they developed a close friendship with her, checking on her virtually every day since she had no family. When it became time for this woman 
to move to an assisted living center because she could no longer live independently, this family helped her get into a really nice assisted living center. And they continued to visit her and support her and show love to her until she passed. Scripture leaped off the page into their lives and they loved their actual neighbor. One of my favorite examples of spirit-guided reader response interpretation is actually centered on a little-known verse, 2 Timothy 4, 21, which says, Do your best to come before winter. Do your best to come before winter. According to the text, the Apostle Paul is requesting that his protege, Timothy, come and visit him before wintertime. But this text meant something different to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. He was particularly bright and gifted, and so he was offered the chance to teach at a seminary in the United States. And so he came over to America and taught theology. In 1939, as Hitler was marching through Germany, Bonhoeffer read 2 Timothy 4, 21. Do your best to come before winter. The scripture leaped off the page and into his life. He said of the verse, that follows me around all day. It is as if we were soldiers on leave going back into action. He felt God calling him to go home before winter, so he left the safety of the United States and returned to Nazi Germany in the summer of 1939. When he got there, he stood up for Christ, opposed Hitler, taught at an illegal underground seminary, and ended up getting arrested for his resistance to the Third Reich. In prison, Bonhoeffer ministered to the guards and he ministered to other inmates. But after a while, he was consigned to a concentration camp. On the day they came to get him, to take him to the execution chamber, Bonhoeffer was in the middle of conducting a worship service. As he walked away toward his death, he said to his cellmate, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. What a mighty witness he was and what a reminder he gives us all that God can speak to us today through Holy Scripture. Scripture is not stuck in the past. Scripture is not stuck on the page. Scripture leaps into our lives for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Amen.